Today we're going to be in John chapter 10. So, this time of year is replete with dressing up, dressing up your kids. They look so cute, right? Hoping that they could at least stay clean until dinner time, right? This purple shirt that my wife makes me wear every year on resurrection service. You know, I worked late last night, so I got home and, you know, I, I want something. She says, no, I want you to wear this. But I really can't argue with her because she holds the keys to the ironing board. So I could either be wrinkled and wear what I want or wear what she wants. Uh, also, what else do we think of this time of the year? Overeating, right? Who doesn't overeat? Uh, leftover turkey and ham for the next week and a half. And my son and I usually fighting over the ears of the chocolate bunnies. My wife says, well, they're his bunnies. And I say, well, I bought them. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to love the little, and they still have them. I can't eat them anymore, though. They give me a headache, a sugar headache. But you know the Cadbury eggs? It's a solid chocolate egg, and they hollow it out just enough to fill it with this yellow and white uh, sugary goo inside of there. Man, that stuff is good. Apparently, a lot of you have had Cadbury eggs. But on a serious note, this is the holiest, most important time of all eternity. Not just year, but all eternity, what we celebrate. Our Savior promised he would rise from the dead. It was the culmination of all his promises. And even the Apostle Paul said that if he didn't rise from the dead, we'd all be dead. We would all be dead in our sins and trespasses. And that's what separates Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, from all those who have or would claim to have that same title. I want to take, turn your attention to John chapter 10, a few verses, starting with verse 7. John chapter 10, verse 7. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thieves and the robbers were all those false teachers, false leaders, false people who came before him and even after to claim to have the way of salvation. But Jesus says, I am the door. Verse 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he who is a hireling or a hired hand and not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Those shepherds that really don't care for the sheep, that uh, maybe are in it in ministry for a poor reason, or to lead people so they could be aggrandized and they could have themselves lifted up. And what happens is when the wolf comes, when the enemy comes, when Satan comes, he doesn't do anything. He just runs away and the wolf catches them. He leads people into false doctrine and into damnation. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. What I find fascinating is that I don't want to go too much into the Greek grammar, but Jesus keeps saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. In the Greek, the word is me, which means I am. It's to be conjugated into first-person singular personal pronoun. Now, he says ego, where we get the word ego in the English. It means I in the Greek. I am. Ego me. It almost sounds like I, I am. 
if you read the Greek. And it seems like a redundancy and it doesn't belong there. But follow this. Ego me, what Jesus is saying is he's showing emphasis. He's saying, I am. In other words, Jesus doesn't go up and say, hi, I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, yeah, I'm the bread of life. I'm living waters. That's me. I am. Okay. What he's saying is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. I am the door to the sheepfold. Only through me can they go in and find pasture. Can they come in and go out? I am the bread of life. He who partakes of me will never hunger again. Do you see the difference in the emphasis? I lay down my life for the sheep. There's a wrong impression of Jesus, that he's a namby-pamby daisy picker, and he walks around in a field of buttercups. That's not the Jesus that we know. It's not. Jesus has authority. He has authority. He wants you to make sure that you know who he is. And make no mistake about who Jesus is. Because who you think he is and what you believe about him will determine your eternal security. Others may claim religious titles, but none have risen from the dead. As a matter of fact, every year, many religions follow their religious leaders. And when they die, okay, from all sects of religions... They go to the tombs, the enshrinements, and they pay homage, and they weep, and they, they are sad, and they uh, mourn, and they afflict themselves, tens of thousands, any religion you can think of every year. But the tomb that had Jesus in it, nobody visits it because it's empty, because Jesus rose from the dead. That's something that we have to understand. Cool. I like excitement. I can know that you're paying attention. How could you not pay attention? I'm shouting at you, right? <laughs> but what it brings me to is my next point. What does the world say about Jesus Christ this time of year when we celebrate the resurrection? Because Jesus Christ is so important that even those who don't believe have to weigh in on him. They have no choice. They're drawn into the debate, even if it's derogatory. Well, we saw the Da Vinci Code. Even though it was fiction, there was an assertion about Jesus and Mary Magdalene and, you know, all bizarre things. And what it does is it tries to take Jesus off his position. We saw the Gospel of Judas. Strangely enough, National Geographic put that out. There's some strange bedfellows there. But the assertion was that Jesus and Judas had some secret arrangement for Judas to betray him. And, of course, we, we researched that. It's the Gnostic work. It's a, a esoteric work. It's totally... You know, it's an older copy. It's a copy of a copy. We totally debunked that, um, and many have. And then last year, around this time of year, James Cameron, the director, uh, tried to purport this whole thing about the ossuary of James, supposedly that somebody might have found some bones in an ossuary that might have belonged to Jesus. Now, that thing actually lost steam as quickly as it started. It, many prominent archaeologists said, listen, we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole. It's, it just, it's junk science. So this is what the world says. But again, 2,000 years ago, it was also in the best interest of the world system to discredit the resurrection. You see, the Roman Empire had a problem. They didn't care what you believed. As long as when the Caesars came out, the men who proclaimed to be God, you would hail Caesar. You would bow to Caesar. You would worship Caesar as a god. You could believe whatever you want. You could worship the chair over there. But as long as when the Caesars came out, you worshiped the Caesars. But see, the Christians wouldn't do that. And the reason is because they saw their savior, they saw their leader rise from the dead. So they were willingly uh, going to their graves, their deaths, their children, because of worship of Jesus only and not worshiping the Caesar. 
And oppressive governments today still have that same problem with Christians. If you look at overseas news, you see that Christians are more persecuted than any other group, and they're killed for their faith on a daily basis. What about this year? You know, I've been paying attention to the news and the, and the Internet, and I'm waiting for some new thing to come out to try to discredit the resurrection. Anybody hear of anything? Because I haven't. I have my ear to the ground, nothing. But sometimes the old tricks of Satan are just as good as the new tricks. No matter what he puts out there, sometimes he has a hard time convincing people there is no God. When we see the complexity of our lives, of our children, the whole birthing process, you know, relationships, you know, we have a really hard time believing that we evolved from sea slime. You know that somebody created us because there's design in our bodies. So you know what works really well? Sometimes the recycled old tricks, the old lies of Satan, like you don't need fellowship. It's not necessary for a believer to have godly friends and contacts. Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. One of the old lies and the old tricks are you don't have to pray. Oh, that's legalistic, praying every day. Or have your pastor do it because God really doesn't want to hear from you. You're insignificant. It's a lie from Satan. What did Jesus teach his followers? The importance of prayer. Prayer is a lifeline to your Father in heaven, to your Creator. It was so important that he explained the dynamics to his followers of how to have a relationship with their God. Or you don't have to be in God's Word. Hey, that's a great idea. Send believers out into the world, into this decadent world, with no equipment to defend themselves. Or you don't have to go to church. And that's a good way to keep Christians completely isolated, weak, and ineffective for the kingdom. There's a little story, and it's, been, uh, it's a fictional story, and it's been kind of revamped a few times about Satan. And he is trying to find a way to get uh, God's people away from God. He's trying to break down the relationship between God and his creation. And he summons his three top demon generals to come before him and give an account. And he says, what's the plan, guys? What are we going to do? Well, the first demon says, well, we'll just tell them that there is no God. And Satan says, ah, oh, you know, that's been tried, but, you know, God, God put too much complexity into creation. I, I don't think that's going to fly. And the second demon says, well, why don't we tell them they can be like God, in effect, bringing God down and bringing the people up. He goes, well, I mean, it's kind of caught up a little bit, caught on, but it, it doesn't really gain a lot of steam. And the last demon says, well, why don't we tell them they have plenty of time. Eventually they'll get to it. Keep putting that thought in their head. Wait till I finish college. Wait till I uh, get married. Wait till, I, wait till my uh, parents who are sickly pass away. Wait till all these things happen. And we can put any of those labels in our own life. Wait till this, wait till that, wait till this, wait till I retire. And you know what? It never happens. So Satan goes, that's a great idea. That's what we'll purport to them. Tell them there's plenty of time. That strategy has been working really well. 80% of Americans or more polled said that they, have a, they believe they're Christians. But you wouldn't know it by the crime rates, the abortion rates, some of these court decisions, the hypocrisy in the politicians. Saw that, that uh, governor of New York, you know, with the, you know, he had a, an affair, well, he had an adulterous relationship with a prostitute, and he stepped down. And now the, the new governor that's there, now he's had all these uh, adulterous relationships, and he used some of the state's money, so he's got to pay back the state just in case it was, you know, for personal use. Can we find a good politician anywhere? Somebody who really cares about the people? Well, the pulpits are no better, guys. Look at, look at the news. Look at the pulpits. You know, supposed ministers falling into these sinful relationships. 
left and right. They're dropping like flies. But 80% of Americans polled say that they're Christian. It's pretty sad. But the good news is, I don't want to give you the bad news without giving you the good news. The good news is we have a Savior who became, who is fully God and became fully man, who was born of a virgin and who fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. We have a Savior that lived a sinless life and taught us how to get right back into the relationship with our Creator. We have a Savior that willingly went to the cross to shed his blood for the remission of our sins. We have a Savior that promises over and over that the hallmark of his deity will be approved in his rising from the dead. But we have so many Christians running around with a nominal faith as if Jesus was still in the tomb. I want to encourage you this morning, if you turn to John chapter 20, I want to give you an example of a few people who said that they were followers of Christ, had some trouble with the whole resurrection idea, and then their lives were transformed after that. Who were human, just like us, but they became pillars of, of the Christian faith. Starting with verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Wait a minute. Why assume that they or somebody removed Jesus from the tomb? Didn't Jesus repeatedly say that on the third day I will rise again? Right? We read that. Verse 3. Then Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, I am going to go into the Greek a little bit just for the sake of bringing out the meaning of this word. For those of you who are maybe new here, the Bible was written, the New Testament was written in the Koine Greek. So to study it, sometimes it helps to bring out uh, a, a richer meaning than where you're actually reading on the surface. John, he goes to the tomb and he saw, the word says, he blepe in the Greek. It's a basic word for he saw with his eyes. Now, Peter went into the tomb and he also saw, but it's a different Greek word. Instead of blepe, it's theore. Now, the word theore is where we get the word theorize from or contemplation, trying to figure it out. So Peter goes in there and he looks and he's theore, he's, he's contemplating, what, what am I seeing here? But the question is, Peter, what's to figure out? Jesus said he would rise again. You know, what's, what's the, the, the mental machinations going on there? But human nature is to doubt God more than to trust him, to be weak in the faith until it can be figured out, to try to figure it out with our own senses and make sense of it. Isn't that true of human nature? Verse 7. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Now, at first glance, you would see or you would think that among Jesus's other good qualities, while he was in the tomb, he was also tidy. Wherever he went, he, you know, did a great job everywhere, including putting all the the kerchief together that was around his head and and the body cloths in its own place. But there's something deeper than that. More importantly, what we see is not the tidiness of Jesus, But what we see that it shows more precision than haste, right? If somebody was to go in and steal the body, they couldn't tell anybody. It would have to be a secret. 
if the disciples could possibly get past the, the guards, which they were just, you know, regular fishermen, they couldn't do it, overpower these guys, and roll that huge stone away, which they couldn't do. If somebody was to steal the body, they would have grabbed it and they would have just dragged it out and said, how do we get rid of it and bury it so nobody sees it? These, these cloths would be ripped. They would be, it would be a mess. But what you see is everything is put, Jesus rose from the dead, took the cloths off, put them where he needed. He was in no hurry. He had a 40-day ministry ahead of him, right? Post-resurrection. So that's what we see here. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who came in the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Verse 9. Yet they did not know the scripture, yet that he must rise again. How many times have you heard something, but it never sinks into your heart? Now, hopefully you don't do that with your spouse. It doesn't make for a good marriage relationship, right? But how many times have you heard something, but you need to come to your own conclusion? Maybe, again, you've done that with your spouse. Um, Sometimes my wife will say to me, give me these good ideas, and then I'll just, a few weeks later, I'll come up with the idea, and she goes, hey, I thought of that first. Don't try to take credit for it, right? But this is the beauty of the entire passage. It shows the frailty of us. It shows the frailty of humans. A lot of times we don't get it. But you know what it shows? It shows the love of God. It shows the grace of God. And it shows the patience of God. Jesus said, how long, when he was walking with his disciples, he goes, how long must I bear with you? But he kept giving them chances over and over again. He, kept, he was very patient with them, with them. And God is patient with us. And I believe if we're honest with ourselves and we look at these uh, these historical figures, we could see ourselves and there. I'm not going to sit here and say to you, if I was back then, I would have been the super apostle and I would have figured it out. I probably would have been the same way as them. It's human nature, isn't it? Verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and at the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary's having a paroxysm. She's having an emotional outburst here, okay? She loved Jesus so dearly, and she felt so powerless and helpless that somebody took the body of Jesus, and she couldn't even give him a proper uh, burial with the spices and, and a proper reverence. Think of the way she's thinking, right? Not thinking of resurrection, thinking of, I can't believe they stole the body. Where have you lain him? Please tell me, I beg you. Please tell me where you've lain the body. It was the tragedy of the ages to Mary that somebody would take him. But Jesus said he would rise again, didn't he? I keep saying that, like a broken record. Why is it that everyone made every assumption except for the proper assumption, right? But Jesus said he would rise again. Again, human beings were no different. And... I, I see that, I, I keep repeating this, but Jesus said he would rise again. God speaks to us, and sometimes we're dense. Sometimes it get, doesn't get through. I believe in Italian it's called malatesta. Right, Anthony? Correct me if I'm wrong. But we can be a little bit dense. <laughs> He's back there. And it doesn't get through, but God is speaking to us. God spoke to us. When Jesus came and he walked the earth and he taught us about our relationship to him and to our creator, he spoke to us. When Jesus said, I would rise again, I will rise again, he spoke to us. When Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to all those people, he spoke to us. When God's word was left to us in legible form, God was speaking to us. And God is also speaking to us today. But the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? 
And that's important. Verse 14. It says, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Look at the first thing Jesus did. Okay? It's, it's, it's in two parts. He greeted them. He said, Peace to you. Peace to you. And immediately he showed them the wounds. Okay? The wounds from the nail prints. Peace to you. Look, it's me. Why did he do that? Because their first assumption, again, Jesus knew human nature. It, the Bible says nothing was created unless it went through Jesus Christ, right? John's work. So Jesus knows us. He designed us. And he knew that their first assumption might be that they would think he was a ghost or something else. Remember when he walked on water and they saw him walking on the water and they said, oh, it is a ghost or a spirit. They were frightened. So Jesus knew human nature. Instead of assuming, well, that's Jesus, we should have expected he was going to come back for us. But again, he told them in advance these things would happen. You see, I'm not, I'm, this isn't a stretch at all because think about the behavior. Now, let's go to the other side. Think about the behavior of Jesus' followers if they truly believed he was going to rise from the dead, right? They take him down from the cross. They put him in the tomb. The tomb is sealed. The wax seal is on there. The contingent of guards is on there. If you truly believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, what would you have done if you were them? You would have taken some milk, maybe some goat cheese, maybe a little bread, some water. You would have taken a blanket, a tent, and you all would have marched your way over to there, not to offend the soldiers, but enough distance away. You would have set up camp. You would have probably made some type of ball like New Year's Eve in Times Square and set it up and did the countdown. Sunday morning comes. Jesus is out of here because he said he would, right? Now, maybe I'm going a little bit too far to the other way, but their behaviors didn't show that they truly believed in their hearts that he was going to rise from the dead. It's the gardener. Somebody took the body. You know, I'm looking at the cross. I don't get this thing, right? Human nature. It's good stuff here. This is, you know, there's hope for us, right? But some here today may be like them. You may have a nominal faith, but you're living as though Jesus has never been resurrected. These are good people. They're good people. I'm not saying anything bad about them but they lived as though Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And then we see when they truly got it that their lives were transformed. Some of us may have come from a Christian home. Some of us maybe have the, the, the name Christian, living Christian all of our lives, but we're living the defeated Christian life instead of the victorious Christian life. There's a big difference. And the, and the catalyst, the impetus to all that is the resurrection. Once you truly believe that your Lord and Savior truly rose from the dead, it changes your life. It has to. Verse 25. 
or verse 24, excuse me. But Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. That's where he gets the name from, right? I don't care what Mary said. I don't care what you guys say. Love you. But unless I see it for myself and put my fingers in the womb, the wounds, I'm not going to believe it. Now, you've got to hand it to Thomas because Thomas is not going to pretend something he's not. I like that about Thomas. He's very straightforward with them. He's very frank. And we may have some doubting Thomases here today. I don't know everybody here. I don't know where your walk is. I don't even know if you're buying this or not. But we may have some doubting Thomases, and that's okay because I've got to tell you something. When Thomas got it, he was unstoppable. Tradition says that he just, he just went all across the world, even as far as India, preaching the gospel. When he finally got it, he was unstoppable, even to the point of dying a martyr's death. Okay? And also, Acts 17.11, it's good to be discerning and say, you know what, prove it to me. When Paul went into Berea, the apostle Paul, the super apostle, he said, Jesus is the Christ. And they said, prove it to us. Okay, Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross. Hold on, Paul. What do you think, guys? It's in there. What else, Paul? We're not completely convinced. I, and I'm, I'm taking liberties. Isaiah 53, you know, it talks about uh, the suffering servant. Your Messiah is to suffer. Hold on, Paul. Hold on, hold on. Let's look through the scrolls. Oh, it's in there too. I take it all together. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He rose from the dead. You know what, Paul? You're right. They were discerning. They took apart the scriptures. They used the information they had. They didn't have Google at the time. But they used what they had, right? And they, they realized what Paul was saying was true. So it is good to be a Berean. It's, it is good to say, prove it to me. That's why I do so much studying, so I could prove it to you. But the bottom line, too, is you also have to open your heart. I can't intellectualize anybody into the kingdom of heaven. It can't be done. And if that was the case, then God would only use smart people to, to preach his word. And we know that that's not the case. So, you know, you can peel off the layers of the onion, so to speak. You know, the barriers, the defenses that everybody has up. But you cannot intellectualize anybody into the kingdom of heaven. I've actually heard people say, you know what, you're very convincing, but put your hand up and say, I'm not ready. I respect that. I'll back off. God still needs to work on your heart. So that, the Holy Spirit, God drawing men to himself, that's still a huge and, and the most important part of the equation. So we have our responsibility, and we know that God does his part. Verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, this is heavy, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So finally, Thomas gets to put his fingers in the wounds, and he worships him as God. And he says, and we know that they spoke the Greek, whose Bible was written in Greek. He says to them, Hakoriasmu kai hatheasmu. And what that means in English is, he's saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Now, somebody will say, well, if you look at the English, he could have said, because many people, people try to deny the deity of Christ. They say, well, he could have looked at Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. No, 
there's rules of Greek grammar. There's the Granville Sharp's rules of Greek grammar. And there's also the fact that in Greek grammar, the first word in the sentence, not like our English, is the most important. Greek is kind of different from English. So kurios, Lord, was first. The whole focus was on kurios. Anyway, long story short, he said to Jesus, you're my Lord and you're my God. That's what's so powerful about this. And the blessing, too, is, in case you missed it, is verse 29. Jesus said to him, he had to go out of his way for Thomas. I mean, he didn't have to. He loved Thomas. And Thomas was, was a little skeptical. And Thomas should have known better. But Jesus obliged him. Here. Here's the wounds. Here's the wounds. And Thomas had an emotional experience there. But Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, guys. That's us. Right? That's us. Our generation. Those who believe there's a special blessing in there for us. That's pretty neat. Verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other things or signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John is, is of the same mindset when he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1st John 5, uh, John says this, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and it is in his Son. And John says, he who has the Son of God has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. It's very simple, folks. It's either you believe in Jesus or you don't. You can't sit on the fence. You've got to fall in one or two camps. Just, um, just a, a little background before we close. The New Testament was comprised of several different books, by several different authors with different backgrounds who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Eyewitness accounts that would hold up in a court of law, whether you study Old Testament law, whether you study Roman law, or whether you study American law, jurisprudence. Fact, a few facts, empty tomb. 2,000 years people have had the opportunity to try to find the body of Jesus, and believe me, they have. And the tomb is still empty, fact number one. Fact two, persecution. The Christians were persecuted. Every group in the Roman Empire persecuted the Christians. And then throughout the Middle Ages and even till today, they were persecuted. What did they do? Think about it. Christianity started out as a small Judaic sect. Not a, not a whole lot of followers, especially after he died. All of a sudden, if you were to graph it on the chart, after the resurrection, boom, there was a spike in those followers. And then when the Romans started killing Christians, it spiked even higher. Well, this doesn't make any sense. What's wrong with these people? What were they drinking? You know what I'm saying? But the, the point is, they saw the resurrected Christ. The evidence was, of Christ was so powerful that this little Judaic sect grew to this incredibly large faith, right? Fact, biographies of Jesus. Sure, we have them in the Bible, but we also have biographies of Jesus from secular people, Roman historians, okay? And we also have those that were close to Jesus, didn't buy his story. We could see it when he was alive, but when he rose from the dead, especially two of them who certainly didn't buy it, went to write books about him. Fact, prophecies. The Old Testament was codified prior to Jesus. All the Old Testament was already in scrolls. It was already set. It was in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and it was, in, it was translated into, into Greek in the uh, 3rd century B.C. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Psalm 16, Jesus went to Hades and back after he died. Psalm 110, he's to be seated at the right hand of the Father after the resurrection. And on and on and on. So when Jesus is born, it's not like he could have changed the rules and changed the Old Testament because it was already set before he was born. Fact. 
evidenced through the ages of multitudes of people who have completely changed their lives. Completely changed their lives. Starting with the Roman Empire. You know how many Roman soldiers saw Jesus before Pilate, saw Paul before Agrippa and Festa, saw the prisons, the, the, the Apostle Paul in prison, and their lives changed. There's all these accounts of Roman soldiers who saw this stuff and said, why am I worshiping the emperor? I've got to be crazy. Jesus is risen. Emperors, Roman emperors, uh, Roman soldiers, all the way through up through um, terrorists today. I'm just giving uh, Al back a CD about three terrorists, I mean terrorists, over in the Middle East, who were introduced to Jesus Christ, and they totally renounced their ways, they totally gave up what they did, they were ostracized by their family, and they became Christians, and now they love Christians and Jews. I mean, this only happens through supernatural means. It doesn't happen through natural means. Uh, communist torturers during the Cold War. Uh, Pastor Wombrand wrote a lot of books. Uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but he talked about the communist secret police in Romania. One particular lieutenant, Lieutenant Franco, tortured him. He has a picture of him. Tortured him, beat him, you know, everything. And the uh, pastor just prayed for him, told him he loved him. Jesus loves you. And this guy was... He couldn't understand it. He went home to his wife and said, I'm a sick man. I'm beating this person, and he just has so much love in his heart. So he comes back. He, the, the, the communist is led to the Lord, and then he gets imprisoned by the communist government saying, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. How did you become one of them? Stories like this, real-life accounts, not fairy tales. So I would ask you this. What is it in your life, okay? The Apostle Paul murdered people. Moses killed people, Right? And they were converted and they were changed to become pillars of the faith. My question to you is, what is it in your life that you don't think that you can be forgiven for? What's holding you back from giving your heart to Jesus? Is it murder? Is it stealing? Have you done uh, immoral or unethical things in your business that nobody knows about? You say, I'm just, I can't come to Christ. Nobody knows these dark secrets in my life. Is it rage? Is it drugging? What is it that you don't think that the Lord will accept you? God forgives and God transforms. And don't let your, your past hold you back. Is it haunting you? Don't let it. Repent and believe and the promises of the kingdom are all yours for the taking. What is stopping you from coming to church? Is it unbelief? Do you think you're not good enough? And I've said this before. My wife and I, when we first started to come to the church that we got saved in, you know, we knew that we weren't walking with the Lord, but we were interested and we would walk into church and we, during worship, people would be singing and holding up their hands and we'd be looking around and we actually came to the same conclusion. We don't belong here. <laughs> we know ourselves. But you know what? None of us belong here. This is a privilege and it, that's the truth. You don't belong here, but that's only part of it. I don't belong here. None of us belong here to be able to worship God, the almighty God, the creator. We don't belong here. We're not worthy. But see, that's what Jesus did. He died on the cross so he could take our reputation to be crucified on the cross. And when we believe in him, we repent of our sins. We ask God to change our life. The Holy Spirit seals us. A part of God actually resides in you. And you can start that walk with your creator. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't matter what you've done. Let it go. And if you receive the Lord today, it doesn't mean tomorrow you're going to be perfect. God does a work in us. It's a work in process. It's like the, the, uh, the uh, sculptor. You know, it's a big blob of clay. It doesn't look very good. But over time, over days, it keeps chipping off it, and all of a sudden it's this beautiful masterpiece. So think about that. Those in John chapter 20 that we just read about went through a chrysalis, sort of how a caterpillar goes to a butterfly. Caterpillar walks on the land. If he doesn't walk fast enough, somebody steps on him and he gets squashed. 
And, you know, he gets into the cocoon, he changes, he flies out, he's beautiful, everybody loves him now, he's very beautiful, nobody wants to step on a, a butterfly, right? Goes through a complete chrysalis, cre- uh, complete change. And I look at the change in their lives, too. They were caterpillars for a while. They were caterpillars. But the, the, the change, the catalyst between the caterpillar and them turning into beautiful butterflies was the fact that they got the resurrection. They believed it in all their hearts, and it transformed their lives, you see? Let's live our life as though we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Let's live that victorious life in Christ. There's plenty of churches today that maybe are dead, and they don't believe. They're caterpillars. Maybe they don't believe, too, the resurrection. I mean, I don't know what they're talking about today. Maybe the church bake sale or the Easter egg hunt after church, but there's a lot even among Christendom. The Bible said that that the faith would start to be apostate and people would stop believing in the resurrection. I want to read some to you that Peter talks about, the Apostle Peter in his time. Everybody's waiting for the Lord to come back, even in their day. And Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's important. What is God waiting for? He might be waiting for you, or you, or you. I don't know. He might be waiting. God is so loving, and you could see he's so patient that he's waiting and waiting. As the world gets worse, that we turn to our bank accounts, or we turn to our friends, or we turn to all these other things. But God is saying, turn to me, and he's long-suffering. And he's been long-suffering for 2,000 years, but his patience won't run out. If you've been searching, or you've been told about Jesus, yes, be a Berean. Check it out. See if what I'm saying is true. Get a copy of the CD, take it home, go on your computer or your library and do your homework. See if what I'm saying is true. But don't wait too long. Okay? Don't take God's long-suffering and his patience and step on it. Don't make it a common thing. Because one day, the age of grace will be over. And the Lord will come back, and it's then, then you're, on, you're, you're in one of two camps. You're either in those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're there, whether you like it or not, in those who reject Jesus Christ. And that's not a good thing. Because... You don't have eternal life without Jesus Christ. Okay. So, what I do know is that Jesus did rise from the dead. And my job, and I hope I did this, is to stir you. I want to stir your hearts and remind you what Jesus did. And I want to stir you to try to live. Live like you believe. And the more you believe and truly believe in his resurrection, the more your lives will be transformed. Believing that he really rose from the dead. Let's pray.